turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. I don't know if you've ever uh, experienced where you're, you're in a conversation with somebody or perhaps you're, you're in a kind of a teaching environment and you're speaking, you're, you're leading, maybe you're trying to d- guide a conversation in a certain way, um, but certain distractions keep coming up. Perhaps the person you're talking to, you ask them a question uh, or you make a statement and the person, instead of responding directly to what you said, it's like they saw something out of the corner of their eye that that's what they want to talk about now. We call that in our house uh, just chasing rabbits. That's not a Carlson unique phrase, of course, but that happens pretty frequently in our in our home um, where we're trying to lead in a direction and some, a- some aspect of what was just said uh, draws the attention away from the, the point that's being made. And so now we'll find ourselves several sentences or m- even minutes down the road realizing, wait a minute, wait, we are well off the beaten path here. We, we, have, we have chased this rabbit well off of uh, the path that we were intending to walk. The verses we look at today in Ephesians 3 are a little bit like a rabbit trail uh, in the Apostle Paul's flow of thought. He, he seems to get kind of distracted for a moment and, and, uh, and starts to go down this rabbit trail in hunt of, uh, of a rabbit that's a little bit different than the point he's been trying to make. But lest we think that we should tune out for these 13 verses, and now we can just skip down to where Paul gets back to his point, these, uh, this, I trust, is a Holy Spirit-inspired rabbit trail, and the words, the message, the content of this uh, rabbit trail is extremely beneficial and, and encouraging and insightful. And so I'm grateful to God that Paul had this, uh, that Paul chased this particular rabbit. You can see what I mean uh, with this paragraph as a, as a kind of a rabbit trail. If you see the way it begins, look in verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, For this reason I, Paul, begins to speak of himself as a prisoner, and on he goes. And then if you skip down to verse 14, he begins the very same way. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. And so it seems that as he's been speaking in chapter 2 about the incredible grace that God has poured out on spiritually dead people to make them alive with Christ so that uh, in Christ we are uh, made new, given new life. And in fact, chapter 2 verses 11 through 22, he has caused the divisions between Jew and Gentile, that is all non-Jewish persons, to have been destroyed and eradicated so that now God has created for himself one new man in the place of the two. And so he's speaking of this beautiful reality of the grace of God poured out on sinners and the work that Christ accomplished at the cross to unite a people for himself. And it seems that he intends from there, verse 22 of of chapter 2, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. If you jump to verse 14, for this reason... I bow my head, my knees before the Father, and he begins to pray. And so verses 14 through 21 are another prayer of the Apostle Paul for uh, the Christians to whom he's writing. But there's these 13 verses in the middle of that where he seems to chase a rabbit trail. So let me read for you these 13 verses, and we'll see just what it is that Paul thinks is so worth the sort of big parentheses. Like, all right, let's hit pause on the point. Before I get to the prayer, right, before I get to the closing prayer, i got to say this one more thing. 
Let's see what he has to say. Looking in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. It's a digression with a pastoral aim. You can see that that, that aim clearly in verse 13 at the very end. It comes down to this. So I ask you, in light of these things, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. As we unpack these verses together, I think we'll begin to understand why it is that these realities that he speaks of would would be a cause of, of confidence and of courage for God's people. The first thing to point out is that this passage is, is bracketed by references to Paul's imprisonment. So he begins by saying this, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And so he mentions here that he is in prison. Now we remember, and as we introduced this letter a few weeks ago, we, we talked about how Ephesians is one of several letters that Paul wrote from prison. He was under house arrest in Rome at this time for a couple of years, it seems, and wrote several letters that uh, we have in our New Testament, this being one of them. And so he reminds them here, I am, I am imprisoned. But I want you to see what he says here. He doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of Rome or a prisoner of Caesar, but a prisoner of Christ Jesus. A prisoner of Christ Jesus. And he doesn't say that I'm a prisoner because of sin or unrighteousness or an unfair process or unfair treatment. What he says is, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you, on behalf of you Gentiles. Because again, he's writing to a predominantly Gentile audience, those who have converted to faith in Christ, but were not and are not Jewish people. And so he says, I am a prisoner of Christ for you, for your sake, on behalf of you. 
We'll come, we'll expand on that uh, in a few minutes. And then down at the end of the passage, in verse 13, he says one more time, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, referring to his imprisonment, the fact that he's been bound and he's not free to go about as he normally would. Uh, he's, he's trapped, he's stuck, and he's awaiting some kind of a judgment, and he's not sure, of course, how that judgment is going to go. So he says, don't lose heart over what I am suffering for you. And he calls it, in, in, indeed, the glory of the Gentile Christians. Don't lose heart because of what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. It's kind of an odd thing to say, that the fact that he's in prison is the glory of the Gentile Christians to whom he writes. It's sort of an odd thing to say. Why would he say that? Well, I think the reason that his imprisonment is their glory is that his imprisonment is for their sake, as he said. I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he begins in verse 2 uh, to speak of uh, the particular ministry that God has given him for their sake. He says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. So he refers to his ministry as a Gentile-aimed ministry. I am, my ministry is for your sake. God gave me, he entrusted me with a, a ministry to the Gentiles. And so it's for you that I am where I am. It's because of my faithfulness to the call of God to preach the gospel to you and to bring the gospel to Gentiles that I am imprisoned. And so in a sense, it's their glory. It's their benefit that he is there. He is imprisoned for proclaiming a gospel that has included them in the covenant promises of God through Jesus Messiah. We saw that plainly and powerfully uh, in verses 11 through 22 uh, of chapter 2 last week, that this gospel is one that is not only for the Jewish people, but it's for all peoples. There is no ethnic boundary around the gospel anymore. All peoples Anybody who will trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, repent of his sins, becomes a member of this one people of God. And so uh, as he carries the gospel to the Gentiles and Gentile peoples believe and find themselves grafted into the family of God, it's this very gospel and this proclamation that's landed him in prison. And so he says, I'm in prison for your sake. And it's your glory that I'm here because the reason I'm here is because what I'm preaching is really good news for you. What I'm preaching that's gotten me in trouble with the powers that be in the world uh, is a gospel that is good news for you. The fact that he is suffering imprisonment is a testimony to the grace of God, which is now theirs through the gospel of Christ. And so he bookends this paragraph with this reference. I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And at the very end of that, verse 13, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul's commitment to his God-given ministry to preach the Gentile inclusive gospel of Christ is so unswerving that not only is he not discouraged by his imprisonment, and in fact, he's now asking them not to be discouraged, he's not even distracted from his mission. Here he is, imprisoned in Rome, writing letters, sending messengers, and still doing the work of ministry God has given him to do, even under house arrest. 
Paul's example is a bit of an indictment to me in a lot of ways where I feel, well, my hands are just kind of tied, right? We look at our lives and situations and uh, we think, you know, the pandemic just doesn't really allow us to do anything. So we'll just put a hold on our mission and ministry and that's just what it is. And Paul doesn't live like that. Paul doesn't think, oh man, now that I'm in prison, I guess I have a couple of year, a couple of years to like just not do anything and wait and hope that God does something and gets me out of here. He's like, all right, mission is the same. I just got to adapt. I got to change strategy, change tactic, but the mission has not changed. What an example he provides for us. There's two ways I think that, that Paul's uh, example here is instructive for us. The, the first is perspective perspective on his situation, perspective on the suffering that he's enduring. Paul is not a victim of his circumstances. He was a prisoner of Christ. He looks to the ultimate authority behind what he's experiencing, even in hardship. This imprisonment is not Rome's fault. It's not Caesar's fault. It's, it's the Lord Jesus and his plan. It's, it's the unfolding of God's sovereign will in my life. He's not deterred in any way. He did not view his imprisonment as an accidental detour from his mission to preach the gospel, but as a part of the unfolding of God's sovereign plan. Perspective. In the same way our hardships and distractions come to us by the providential hand of our wise, purposeful God. May we remember in our own seasons of frustration and difficulty God is no less present or purposeful in such days as in others. The perspective of God's sovereign plan unfolding. And the second way that Paul's example is helpful to us is in his perseverance. His perseverance. Paul didn't put his mission on hold because of his imprisonment. He persisted in doing all that he could by God's grace to continue the work. He couldn't travel, but he could write. He couldn't visit with churches, but he could send messengers for mutual encouragement. He couldn't proclaim the gospel in the synagogues and the marketplaces as he normally would, but he could challenge local churches to be busy about the work of evangelism. He could pray, as he frequently reminds them that he does. This is a good word for us in this particular time where COVID-19 is sort of shut down normal life as we know it. Just as Paul's imprisonment did not distract him from his mission to preach the gospel, let's work hard to stay on mission despite the disruptions of the season. It's full of disruptions. There's no question about that. Life has changed. We have to adapt. We're learning new things all the time and not even sure what the near future looks like. That doesn't mean we should put the mission on hold. It means we should uh, take courage, take heart, get creative about how we can go about the mission of proclaiming the gospel and loving our neighbors. Don't let a pandemic rob you of your purpose as messengers of Christ. Well, again, he speaks here of, of this stewardship that he's been given, a gospel stewardship of sorts, of the ministry, that the unique ministry that God called him to. If you look at verse 2, once again, he says, assuming that you have heard, and I think the assuming you have heard thing probably just is an indication that uh, he, while he spent a good bit of time in Ephesus, the church has grown, and in fact there are other churches in the region that have sprung up, and so some of the people that are going to be hearing this letter are people that he doesn't have personal knowledge of, doesn't know personally because of his, the time that's passed. 
And so when he says, assuming that you've heard, it shouldn't indicate that he doesn't have any personal connection to this, these churches in Ephesus, just merely that there's been time that's passed. So he says, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, the stewardship of God's grace. He's speaking here of the mission, the unique personal mission that God had given to him. And now he sees himself as responsible, as a steward. That is one who cares for and manages the resources of another. He's a steward of this ministry. He's a steward of this gospel that he's been given to preach to the Gentiles. Down in verse 7, he says it again. Of this gospel, I was made a minister. The word behind minister is really just servant. I was made a servant of this gospel according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Seems to be that he's probably referring to his uh, experience on the, the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, where he was on his way to persecute Christians, arresting church members and such. And Jesus interrupts him with this blinding light and a voice from heaven that says, why are you persecuting me? And from that moment, his life changed, his mission changed. And so he's been made a servant doesn't say like I kind of sought out this job he's like I was made a minister of this gospel made a servant of this gospel and then finally in verse 8 he says it one more time to me though I'm the very least of all the saints this grace was given and I think there he's speaking he could speak of course of the grace of salvation but I think he's speaking specifically of the grace of this ministry the grace of this new life this new calling this new path that God has put him on um this grace has been given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And, look at verse 9, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. So he sees himself as a mere steward of the gospel, a steward of the ministry that God has given to him. So he doesn't have it's as if he says, I don't have a choice. I'm, I'm, I belong to Christ. I'm a prisoner of Christ. I'm obligated to him. Therefore, I'm obligated to you because he's given me this ministry for your sake. And so all I can do is keep going. All I can do is keep preaching. All I can do is keep writing and praying and, and proclaiming Christ. I love the example of, of spiritual humility that Paul gives us here. You see that in the middle of verse 8. He calls himself the least of all the saints. Similar to in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, where he calls himself the least of the apostles. And in 1 Timothy 1, 15, where he calls himself the chief of sinners. And I don't think this is false humility on Paul's part. I don't think this is disingenuous in any way. I think Paul looks back on his life and where he came from, knowing that he was a, a, a an enemy of God, an enemy of the church, was was persecuting Christians, and now God has saved him and restored him and given him this new ministry. I think he's amazed by that. But I also think as he draws closer to God, as he comes to know God better, he becomes more aware of his own sin in light of his increasing knowledge of God. I think it's true for us as well. It's, a, it's an example of, of spiritual humility and how humility is cultivated the closer we draw to God, the more aware we become of our sin and our fallenness. You might think, 
well, the closer I get to God, the happier I'll be, the easier life will seem. But sometimes it feels a bit different than that. It feels the more I know of God, the more sort of grieved and disgusted I am over my own sinfulness. And you might think that that's, uh, that that's out of step in some way. What's wrong with me? But the truth is, the more we see the light of his holiness, the more we come to depend on the shadow of Christ's cross. If you feel more sinful today than you did at the start of your journey with Christ, it may actually be an indication that you're drawing nearer to him. May our growing sense of personal sin cause us all the more to cling to the cross of Jesus Christ and live in its shadow. I remember an old hymn by Fanny Crosby called Jesus Keep Me Near the Cross. And it, it's, there's a line in there that says, let me, but, uh, excuse me, something like, let me keep day by day, uh, living day by day with its shadow over me. And I, I just love the image of the, the cross casting the shadow that covers us. As though there's this blinding light of God's holiness that we cannot approach. We cannot afford to look at it. But there's a cross between us and the light of holiness. And the shadow of the cross protects us, shields us from the light, uh, the blinding light of God's holiness. And the closer we draw to that holiness, the more we find we really need to live in the shadow of the cross of Christ. Well, the main content of these verses is the mystery of Christ. He uses the word mystery four different times, at least in the ESV. One of those times in verse 6 is, uh, is supplied just to help make the connection between uh, verse 4 and verse 6. But he repeats this theme of, of the mystery uh, of Christ. He says uh, that uh, in verse 3 that the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've written briefly, and I think he's speaking there about um, what he's already spoken of. He mentioned mystery back in uh, chapter 1, as he spoke of the mystery of of God's uh, plan, which has now been made known, right? The mystery of his will, which was a plan to, uh, to, to unite all things in Christ, right? So he's mentioned it, he's spoken of it some. He says, I've already mentioned it briefly, but there's this mystery of Christ, He says that uh, when you read this, verse 4, when you read this or have this letter read to you, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. You can sense the, the ring of truth in what I say. You can discern that this teaching accords with the word of God and the, the ministry of Jesus. So what is this mystery of Christ that sounds a little strange? Why would he be going on and on about a, a mystery of Christ? Well, mystery in the New Testament is not like what we think of this kind of perplexing, impossible to figure out, just sort of unknown category, right? It's not saying, well, you know, the gospel is just like, who knows? It's just so strange and mysterious. I guess we'll never really get it. That's not what he means when he refers to it as a mystery. It refers to something previously, as he says in verse 9, hidden in God. Hidden for ages in God, it says. Which has now been made known by God to his people through special revelation. So when the New Testament writers, like Paul and others, refer to the the mystery, they're referring to something that was not understood, that now, through special revelation and through the ministry of Christ, has been seen and made known and now can be understood. And the content of the mystery is basically what he talked about in the end of chapter 2. If you look at, sorry, verse 6. 
Verse 6, he lays out what the mystery is. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's the mystery, right? So he's already told us. It's not like, bam, I'm unveiling this new thing. He's just reminding them of what he's already said, right? In Jesus Christ, uh, Jew and Gentile have been united uh, so that God now has this one united, redeemed people uh, through faith in Jesus Christ. And so he lays that out again in three terms. The Gentiles are fellow heirs. Well, that point, that makes us think of the inheritance that he spoke of in chapter 1, verse 11, right? That we've been given uh, an inheritance. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And down in verse 14, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession. So it makes us think of what God has in store for his people, right? The, the good blessings that he has for him now and in eternity that's still yet coming. Well, guess what? Now Gentiles who trust in Christ are fellow heirs. They receive the very same inheritance as uh, the Jews. And you can point back even farther in the Old Testament to Genesis 12, 3, where God made his covenant with Abraham. I will make a covenant with you to make you a great nation. And what? All through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, that wasn't fully understood at the time. But now that the gospel in its fullness is seen, the, the way that the, all the families of the earth are blessed through the seed of Abraham is that through faith in Christ, the Jewish Messiah, they are now enfolded into uh, the people of God and made fellow heirs of that inheritance. They're made fellow heirs. Gentiles are now members of the same body. Again, back to chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 specifically, where he says, Christ abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, uh, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. One new man, one body. Jews and Gentiles trusting in Christ are this one new body, the church. And they're partakers of the promise. Partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. Think again of the spirit that was promised as the guarantee of our inheritance back in chapter 1, verse 13. You've been sealed with the spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So the promises of God, even the promised spirit of God, belong not only to the Jews who trust in Jesus, but all Gentile persons as well who trust in the Lord Jesus. So essentially then the mystery's content is the establishing of the church. The, the establishing of the church as a united people comprised of Jews and Gentiles trusting in Jesus. That's what the mystery is. So he says, now that this has been hidden, we didn't understand this, we didn't see this coming, but now God has revealed that Jew and Gentile, by repenting of sin and trusting in Christ, are made, uh, share in the, the identity of the people of God and the internal inheritance that is theirs. That's the mystery that he's speaking of. And I want you to see a progression here. There's, there's a prog an escalating revelation, if you will, of this mystery being made known in this passage. It is not in any way accidental. In verse 3, 
Paul says that the mystery was made known to me. So very first thing he says is, God spoke to me about this mystery. Again, probably referring to his experience on the Damascus Road and perhaps other times of personal sort of instruction by the Lord. He refers to that season like that in Galatians as well, that God sort of took him aside and by special direct revelation to Paul, taught him truth and prepared him for his ministry. So he says that this mystery was made known by revelation to me. Then in verse 4, he says, You can perceive my insight into the mystery, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by his Spirit. Okay, the, the, the circle is widening, right? It's expanding. So now it's not just me that knows it. It's, it's his apostles and prophets. Interesting that he sort of puts uh, apostles, the Paul, Peter, James, John, these guys who are in the process of writing what would become the New Testament, uh, on par with, with the prophets of God. So uh, made known to apostles and prophets in this day, right, in his day, God has revealed this mystery, this gospel, the fullness of what Christ has accomplished in the cross. It, it's getting bigger and bigger. That reminds me of First Peter chapter uh, 1 verses 10 through 12, where, where after Peter sort of enumerates uh, the greatness of the gospel, he says, uh, concerning this salvation, the prophets, looking back to the Old Testament, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So there were generations and generations of prophets and people of God that didn't understand this and wanted to, looked into it, wondered what is all this pointing to? And he says, now the apostles and prophets have been given the fullness of this message, this truth, this mystery of the gospel of the, the church of Jew and Gentile together united in Christ it's been made known now to apostles and prophets. Skipping down to verse 9, it expands even farther. Look at this. He says uh, that, backing up a little bit, to me, verse 8, uh, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and what, verse 9, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So now the mystery of the gospel is made known not just to Paul by personal revelation and not only to the apostles and prophets who are now sharing this message, but, but it's been made known to everyone. And anyone who has ears to hear, anyone in, within the hearing of, of, of those proclaiming this message, it's been made known. The mystery of Christ is that you can be among his people by repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ. And so it, it's escalating. And the final point of this escalation is where I want to camp out for the next couple of minutes. It's been made known to all, brought to light for everyone, the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Verse 10, so that, I love the word so that, always highlight those when you see them. This means this is what God is doing. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. 
the mystery might now be made known. There's that same revelation. It was made known to me. It was made known to the apostles and prophets. It's been made, brought to light for everyone. Now it's being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So the mystery is, a is essentially this, the establishment of the church, right? Because of the gospel, Christ crucified for sinners, Gentile peoples are included in the covenant people of God alongside the Jews. And the existence, the establishment of the church, the life of this unified people in Christ is a sort of cosmic announcement the existence and life of the church is a statement about God's wisdom and his plan to the spiritual powers in the universe. See how this escalated from Paul to the apostles and prophets to everybody, presumably in the world that would hear it. And now even it's been made known to the spiritual rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Why? Because it presents God. It displays God's power and wisdom and glory. This plan is unfolding and it will not be defeated. What are the spiritual powers in verse 10? I think it entails both good spiritual powers and evil spiritual powers. Jumping back for just a second to 1 Peter 1, uh, in that, the same verses we just read where it said that uh, the, the prophets searched and inquired and they didn't understand what it was all about. It says it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So the angels in that context is the servants of God. The, the angels who live in heaven with God and do his bidding in the world, in the spiritual realms that we can't see. God's angels look at the, the gospel, look at the church, look at the wisdom of God and wonder at it and marvel and worship God. And, and, and I think it also entails uh, evil spiritual powers. For a nearer context, you can look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Where he says this, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He expands more there, but three of those phrases are exactly the same as what he says in Ephesians chapter 3. The uh, rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, right? the spiritual powers. And so I think he's speaking here in chapter 3 of all powers, but perhaps focusing on uh, the evil powers, that is Satan and his demons, who are in the spiritual realm this very moment doing the bidding of the devil, trying to disrupt God's work, trying to destroy Christians, trying to keep the gospel hidden, veiling the eyes of unbelievers, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 tells us he is doing. He is actively at work doing this. And the existence and life of the church, God's power demonstrated through the cross of Christ where the dividing wall of hostility was torn down and Jew and Gentile are united across every religious, ethnic, social boundary that could exist 
into one new people. This announcement in the heavenly places puts the devil and his demons on notice. Your time is coming. The church's life is a wonder and a source of worship for God's angels, and it's an announcement to the demons of God's power and of their coming destruction. So here's what I want to say about this, plain and simple. Church life is spiritual warfare. Church life is spiritual warfare. Your participation in the life of the church is an act of war against the spiritual powers that stand against the Lord and his anointed. I don't know if you think about your participation in church in those terms very often, but that's the truth. That's Ephesians 3 reality. When we participate in the life of the church, we are announcing to the spiritual powers in the heavenly places, to Satan and his demons, you won't stand. Your kingdom is going down. Jesus said famously in Matthew 16, verse 18, on this rock is the rock of the profession that Peter had just made about Christ as the Son of God. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Listen, that's not defensive language. It, it, it's, it's offense. When he says that the gates of hell will not prevail, he's not saying that hell, that hell is moving toward us, but we'll be okay. What he's saying is the church is marching against the kingdom of Satan and his demons and their defensive gates will not withstand the campaign. Satan and his demons and all hell will be destroyed as Christ builds his church. It's the church, God's wisdom in creating the church that accomplishes this decisive work of defeating the kingdom of Satan. When we gather in the name of the risen Lord Jesus, the gospel is proclaimed and believed, we are engaging in a supernatural act of warfare against the devil and his armies. When we proclaim Jesus as king and our allegiance to his kingdom, we announce the coming destruction of the domain of darkness. When we baptize believers who have died to their sin, and we partake of Christ in the Lord's Supper. We set ourselves apart, marking ourselves off as those who bow the knee only to Christ and as soldiers in the army of the Lord of hosts, ready to wage his warfare. Want to be a difference maker? Want to change the world? Want to be used by God in advancing his kingdom? Be the church participate in the life of the church, live the life of the church together with those who call upon Christ and have banded together in common faith and covenant for his glory. This is how God wins the world. This is the plan that's been unfolded to unite all things in Christ. Guess how that gets unfolded? It gets unfolded through Christ building his church. The church marching against the kingdom of Satan by, uh, by gathering and uniting under the authority of one king, the Lord Jesus, who rules us by his word, and we announce to the kingdom of Satan, you shall not stand. And so, Paul says, I ask you not to lose heart. That's where this 
comes to, this whole expansion and expression of the glory of God, the wisdom of God displayed in the church, it leads him to this exhortation. Don't, don't lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. Friends, don't lose heart. There's little doubt that 2020 has not shaped up to be the year that you anticipated it to be. We've all been forced to make sacrifices and change plans and adapt to new circumstances. The political rancor surrounding elections, the racial turmoil expressed in protests and rioting, the personal, relational, and economic fallout of a global pandemic. We are truly living in hard days. But the mission hasn't changed. And the church, as the church of Jesus Christ, we are still on the winning side of the cosmic struggle in the heavenly places. Don't lose heart. Look beyond the fog of war. Lift your eyes to the hills from whence comes our help. And be assured, the Lamb who was slain for the sins of his people, Jew and Gentile, and has made them both one, is the Lion who will devour the enemy and his rebel forces and carry us safely through and into his eternal home in glory. Don't lose heart. Let's pray.